Hello, I'm Billy Jacobson, a partner at Allen & Overy, focusing on white-collar criminal work, including FCPA, enforcement, investigations, and defense. This is one in a series of web chats recorded during this period of self-isolation with prominent folks in the anti-corruption world to help keep us all informed, and in my case, to keep me away from my family for a little while. They really appreciate that. So I'm joined today by Richard Grime uh, of Gibson Dunn. Richard's a partner at Gibson Dunn. And before joining Gibson Dunn in 2007, Richard was at the SEC's Enforcement Division. Uh, he was a branch chief and then became an assistant director with responsibility for the SEC's FCPA program. Welcome, Richard. Thank you very much, Billy. Nice to see you. You too. How are you holding up during this weird period of ours? I think okay, like everybody, sort of wondering which day it is when you wake up in the morning and wondering uh, why it is that every day seems the same. Um, but I can't complain. I've got my family here, got a garden to walk around in, so I got really nothing to complain about. So Richard, uh, turning to a bit more substance, what do you see during this period of, of self-isolation? What do you see the DOJ and the SEC doing with regard to FCPA matters? Are they, um, are they moving forward on things? Are they moving slower than perhaps they usually do? What are you seeing in your own work? I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, you probably saw yesterday, uh, they filed an enforcement action um, against an individual, Mr. Burko, um, for corruption in Ghana. So enforcement actions are still getting filed, uh, which is a uh, prize in some ways that they can pull it all together in these uh, times. I'm certainly in discussions with EOJ and SEC regarding uh, how to resolve certain matters. I had another matter the other day where we did a Zoom call with DOJ in connection with a matter that's going to trial later this year. Um, so I think it's a mixed bag. I think where they're having challenges is around uh, receiving documents and reviewing documents and also with how to sort out interviews. Like another matter whereby we're in litigation um, and just working through practicalities around depositions and videos it's been difficult. But I, my sense is that they are prepared to be flexible, are willing to get on calls, uh, certainly willing to do Zoom uh, calls if they want to and need to, um, but the usual hiccups along the way that we're all suffering from. Yeah, yeah, and that's, and that's my experience as well, that they're moving forward with what they can do, that things like interviews and, and, and testimony and so forth may wait. My, my sense is that perhaps they're waiting to see with regard to interviews and testimony, maybe they're waiting to see how long this will actually last, if we'll know something more in a month, let's say, before they start scheduling things. Does that sound right? Yeah, and I think uh, there's a uh, with, there's an SEC uh, email group that we all kind of in, chat about different issues, and that seems to be the consensus in that group as well, um, that the staff absent polling or statute limitation issues or other matters like that, that yes, they quickly they've been prepared to defer and accept that frankly you know when you represent somebody you typically want to be in the same room as that person you want to have time to understand how they're doing and that's not really doable over video so yeah um i think they have gradually understood that point but uh, i think the first few weeks were a little bit of uh, getting used to that sure Sure. And, and, and now they're sort of making do like the rest of us. Everyone's sort of taking the approach. I, I, I feel like it's doing the best we can. It's going to be imperfect. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, Richard, sort of 
moving past the current situation, you left the SEC in 2007. So it's mm-hmm. been um, several years, let's say. What have you seen change by way of the SEC's approach to enforcement, whether it's particular investigative tactics, whether it's use of the statute, legal theories, et cetera? So I think a few things. Um, there's a much greater maturity around the program than there was in 2007. So many more SEC offices are much more comfortable doing the cases. It typically concentrated in New York and Washington when I was there. Um, they are more used to doing much larger cases. Um, I mean, Siemens was in 2008 was kind of a, a high point, uh, but now as a matter of routine, you know, those in the telecom sector, there was a series of settlements, you know, we're talking hundreds of millions, even a billion dollars. Ericsson, for example, is a billion dollar case. Those are more typical than they once were. In terms of techniques, I think, interestingly, you would have thought they would have been more willing to do investigations in the true sense of the word. In other words, use of subpoenas um, and use of their own investigative techniques. I haven't found that necessarily to be the case. There almost seems to be a default that the company will do the investigation. If you're representing the company, you'll download information and the staff will listen, distill it, and go from there. There is less use of those techniques than you would have expected. The only other thing I would say is that given the challenges of of having a, a pretty large inventory, the relationship with DOJ can be spotty. Um, sometimes it works well. Sometimes you can tell that they're not necessarily uh, singing to the same hymn book. Um, so I think in that respect, that coordination that you would have expected perhaps has not fully realized. And why, let's pick up on that last point. Why is that, do you think? Why is the cooperation more in fits and starts? And it, it, to me, it seems like sometimes it depends very much on the personalities of the SEC attorney and the respective FCPA uh, DOJ attorney. Exactly. I mean, I think that really does come down to that. And it's the same thing with uh, foreign cooperation as well as regulators. If you're comfortable with the person who's working alongside you, it generally works better. I think where uh, challenges have emerged is um, where there's different views of how to conduct interviews, for example, you know, they want one on testimony, which is a typical SEC approach. EOJ typically doesn't want that. And that can be a bit of a challenge. Just process around who goes first and what's been done. Sometimes it can be difficulties where the SEC has started an investigation and had it going for a couple of years and then DOJ joins that, or runs a parallel investigation and they're wondering why have been, things been done in a certain way. And then there's just a timing issue as well. I think um, sometimes one agency over another wants to get going and be done and the other one is has different interests and the timing doesn't always gel so well. So understandable, but from the point of view of a representing a company, it can be very frustrating to sort of watch that play out um, and not have seamless uh, cooperation between the two agencies. Yeah, it's one thing when, uh, and I want to ask you about international regulators, but it's one thing when the US regulators are not completely aligned with their international counterparts, sort of more understandable than if they're not aligned with their own SEC colleagues sort of across town in some cases, or at most across the country. Very frustrating. Yeah, right. Yeah. But we've, we've seen that. I think it's probably more the exception around the rule and, it, and it's episodic during the case itself. Um, and so you, you work with it, but I think um, it's still a little surprising that that hasn't kind of fully been uh, sorted through. 
With regard to the international regulators, we've seen a lot of joint resolutions in the last few years with countries like the UK, Brazil, a lot recently, the Netherlands recently, many of them involving the DOJ, of course, um, several of them involving the SEC as well. Who do you see as the SEC's most frequent, common, natural partners overseas? Well, in many ways, you've sort of named some of them. Um, I think the UK still ends up uh, being an obvious um, place because of the common language and the history that goes there. Um, interestingly, I think the Netherlands has played a, a key role um, and they have been more comfortable dealing with them. And also, I think for the, for the most part, in some ways, it, there's sort of two parts to the SEC. They have a series of memorandums of understanding with securities regulators around the world. There's probably 30 or 40 of those that they use on a frequent basis in typical SEC world. In other words, accounting fraud, insider trading, stock manipulation, and so on. And they've used those in FCPA cases to gather bank and other information, as well as to try and tell testimony. But I think uh, whereas DOJ is much more comfortable reaching out to prosecutors and working together on an international level, the SEC is fine on the investigative stage, but in terms of the sharing, the netting of scourgement and penalties, I'm not always so sure it's, it's, it's got a seamless web there. Um, I found in conversations that, for example, the SFO is a criminal agency and the DOJ deals with them well, but the SEC doesn't necessarily always interact with them at the same level. But in terms of which ones they work with, quite surprising when you see at the bottom of a, an enforcement action, all of the countries they have worked with, typical ones, other ones you've named, plus I think um, the uh, Australians they've worked with before. I think they've also uh, all the Channel Islands, the Isle of Man and Jersey and Luxembourg and Switzerland is a, are very common ones, particularly for gathering information. So I think it's one of those things where the case drives it, but and that's why Brazil has been at the forefront in the last two or three years, particularly Petrobras and other cases. Has, uh, has led to that. But I also think behind the scenes, as you know from your time at DOJ, the OECD meetings um, have acquired, have become very important for building those relationships. And those uh, relationships pan out across you know, some 35, 40 countries now in the OECD. And I think those relationships, those informal relationships, the sharing of informal tips, so it's much broader than just um, the formal um, investigative and enforcement resolution. One thing I thought has been interesting or think has been interesting over the last few years is the extent to which the cooperation uh, has been between the DOJ, the SEC, and the Brazilian MPF and the GRU uh, because it's been so extensive, starting obviously with the Lava Jato cases, gave DOJ and the SEC reason to pay attention and reason to cooperate. Um, but it has been so extensive since then, which is quite frankly a little surprising, given that there was almost no nothing before then. You know, relatively recent phenomena um, going back not really before 2014, I think. That's right, and it's been a, it's sort of gone from something to everything. Um, but I think that's obviously driven by a number of factors. One had the huge resolution with Petrobras. Um, you had, frankly, a willingness on the part of the Brazilian prosecutors and DOJ to talk to each other, to work together, to recognize that if they were to bring these cases and be successful, they had to appreciate each other's different interests and be willing to work together. 
having done that, I think they realized that working together was going to get stronger results for all of them. And given the need by DOJ to have access to information and witnesses um, in Brazil, which they otherwise wouldn't have had, given the desire of the Brazilian prosecutors to be able to bring cases and learn from some of the investigators in DOJ, you saw this huge uptick. And now what you have is um, Brazilian prosecutors at the same table. We're dealing with them on a reasonably regular basis in, in one matter and getting on video calls with them in a way that probably wouldn't have been the case two or three years ago, um, you know, with the commission there talking to them in a setting that is very much uh, similar to one you would have at the bond building dealing with uh, the DOJ. So you can see they've been very quick learners and do a great job in trying to figure out how to best to deal with their cases. Yeah, it's been really interesting to watch given how quickly it's happened, how quickly it's evolved, mm -hmm. that relationship. So switching gears, Richard, any um, legal theories that perhaps have, have arisen or um, charging theories that have arisen since you left the SEC that maybe you think are ripe for challenge, things that you maybe you don't agree with the SEC's view on, or whether you agree or not, you think are ripe for challenge uh, in the courts, which doesn't happen very often, obviously? Yeah, I mean, it's funny, right? The, we've we've had a little bit of challenges around, uh, you know, what is an agent with with Hoskins with DOJ, and I think we've seen the courts prepared to uh, push back on what DOJ's expansive theories are on what constitutes an agent. On the other hand, we've equally seen courts disagree on the scope of uh, of you know, conspiracy and how far that can go. I think for the SEC, some of the issues they've run into. Uh, particularly in the Supreme Court, around disgorgement and both the statute of limitations on that and whether or not even have a legal theory to bring that claim are ripe. One of the ones which we've all, we all have to deal with when we're resolving cases of companies is just the breadth of the internal controls provision, which has really never been litigated. As you know, um, the internal controls provision has a reasonableness standard in there, uh, which is generally pushed aside meaning that the SEC regards any breakdown, any mistake almost in a company's control system outside even of accounting controls. It could be training, not in the accounting controls. It could be detection and monitoring of third parties, which is obviously not again in the accounting controls. Any mistake or defect that they see in there, they see as a breakdown in internal controls. Nobody has really taken that on, challenged that because companies resolve these matters. But I do think individuals who are going to get charged with aiding and abetting that control violation have good reason to push back on that. Um, and I think the SEC, it's going to be an important matter when that starts to play out. The other area is just how disgorgement is calculated. It's largely a black box. In other words, there is no transparency by the government on what constitutes disgorgement. What can be included, what can't? Credits and other items are just whether or not taxes are taken into account. Overhead is a ripe for consideration. Um, and I think, again, it would be important for the courts to weigh in on that. We've really only got side of trading cases to look to on disgorgement, and they don't really equate very well to complicated uh, contracts that are often the subject of uh, FTC Act. Yeah, I agree. Any, any, any. Speaking of disgorgement, any prediction on if, if, if the Supreme Court case uh, about disgorgement comes out against the SEC, any prediction on whether that might cool the SEC's uh, order for 
this whole program, the FCPA program? So this is the Lou case that's currently under consideration by the court. And certainly if the court came out and said the SEC has no statutory authority or even any equitable authority to bring disgorgement, that would cause a huge dent in the SEC's program. There's no question about that. I think the sense from the oral arguments was that the court was recognizing that it probably wasn't going to go as far as that. It was going to essentially give the SEC some ability in certain circumstances to tame disgorgement. It might put some limits on it. But it's going to be fascinating to see how that plays out. And nobody, I think, ever thought that here we would be in 2020 looking at a remedy that the SEC has assumed had been in its arsenal for decades and had been used for decades. And so I think taking fundamental looks at what the SEC is doing, how it does it, would be well worth it. Exactly. It will be super fascinating to see how it plays out and then what the ramifications are. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard, as we as we wrap up on a on a personal note, what is it that uh, you miss most about the outside world right now? You know, I think we all in this space spend so much time on planes, and we all bemoan the fact that we have to travel and crazy time differences and lack of sleep. But you know what? I miss that. I miss the variety of seeing people and cultures. I miss that that sort of happenstance of witness interviews face to face in crazy places. I miss. Um, just seeing things uh, differently than my own back garden and living room. I really crave that sort of differentness that comes from being in uh, outside the U.S. and doing these cases. That's probably the biggest sort of hole that I see. I didn't think I would say that because there are so many times when we've all thought it would just be so nice to sit at home, have a beer and relax. And now here I am you know, uh, saying, well, actually... I don't mind it. Like, like most things, too much of something is just typically too much. I was saying to my wife uh, this weekend that I, it's four straight weeks of no travel. I don't think I've done that in 12 or 13 years. Right. right. Yeah. And it's both good and bad, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I think it has been great yeah, being around yeah, the family. My daughter's here trying to figure through the last few weeks of uh I'm a year at college, but I'm glad that we have somewhere to walk outside because uh, you don't want to always uh, see the same faces all the time, particularly in Florida. Yeah, agreed. Well, my last question then, and it may be the time with your daughter, but what is something positive that's come out of this period for you? Frankly, a good night's sleep on a regular basis. That is <laughs> definitely positive. Um, I also think to be like most things, when you look at, you realize how lucky you are. I mean, really, I think this is an inconvenience to people like myself um that's that's the most it is thankfully i haven't suffered any health effects Uh, my brother actually got it but thankfully got through it fine i have a job i have food on the table i i've got nothing really i really appreciate how lucky and fortunate i am and i also really thankful for those people who are facing you know and and treating and and helping people on a daily basis on the front line those are the people who uh, deserve all the support we can give them richard thank you for the time i appreciate it Great conversation. Thank you, Billy. And uh, we should uh, we should do it more often. And uh, uh, it's uh, always good to see you. You too. Be well. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs>